Welcome to the Small Nonprofit Podcast with down-to-earth practical advice on how to get things done in your small organization. You are going to change the world and we can help. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Cindy Wagman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Anya McGlynn. Hello. So we are very excited to introduce you to our guest, Andrea Gunraj, today. Um, We have worked with Andrea at an organization and just felt so great around how she positioned her work. And I think you can have, you can learn a lot from, from her experience. Yeah. So Andrea is a communications expert and specifically has a lot of experience working with organizations that serve equity seeking populations. She's uh, just an exceptional communicator and um, just a really uh, generous, wonderful person. Um, at least that's that's what I've known of uh, my time in working with her. And uh, and I know that all, all our listeners are going to uh, benefit a lot from, from listening to her advice as to um, to how to handle storytelling, uh, especially when uh, your client population are equity-seeking um, uh, members of equity-seeking groups. Um, you know, I think for with fundraising, in many ways, the storytelling that we do to raise money it's it's a deeply rhetorical exercise, and um, I think sometimes in in carrying out that exercise, we lose sight of the fact that it's you know it's real people who um, who are struggling with uh, with some of the worst moments in their lives and some of the most difficult traumas in their lives. So so how do we tell um, those stories in a way that that we know is going to effectively uh, engage donors while still honoring um, and respecting the humanity of, of each and every one of the people who uh, who our fundraising work ultimately benefits. Mm-hmm. And I I know for a lot of our listeners who work in the social justice space, uh, which I think is a lot of the smaller organizations in our country, you know, this is a constant um, tension where we know and we we work with these equity-seeking populations, you know, day in and day out. And what I love about this conversation is so many of our listeners and you and I both have experience working in social justice-based organizations and what we learn about fundraising and storytelling from some of the more traditional uh, sources can feel at odds with our experience and certainly with the experience of the populations we work with. And so Andrea, I think, has a really great uh, way to blend that. And I think it's really useful because we're not necessarily um, compromising either. We're just trying to shake off some of uh, some of the more traditional things that don't work when we talk about social justice. They just they don't stand anymore. That's right. That's right. They, they, they become kind of uh, irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah. So please enjoy this interview. Andrea is great and she has so much experience uh, doing what we think everyone can do, which is take these, the storytelling best practices and make it appropriate for social justice-based organizations in a way where you're still raising money, but you're doing so authentically and in a way that honors and respects the experiences of your client population. Andrea Gunraj is Vice President of Public Engagement at the Canadian Women's Foundation. For over 18 years, she has worked in the community nonprofit sector to help organizations to work alongside diverse communities for meaningful change and to communicate intention and impact. 
She's a published author, facilitator, communicator, and lifelong learner. Please join me in welcoming Andrea. Andrea, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Cindy. It's such a pleasure. Now, for our listeners, you and I have had the chance to work together. We did some work when you were at Eva's Initiatives as the Director of Communications and Public Education, and we worked with Eva's to help them through a uh, transition in their fundraising structure. And now, of course, you've moved on to VP of Public Engagement at the Canadian Women's Foundation. Congratulations. Thank you so much. So one of the things that you and I have talked a lot about is working with equity-seeking populations, specifically around communications and fundraising, but of course, more broadly as non-program staff and how we do so in a way that can reinforce our social justice missions. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience overall and uh, what what kind of work you've done in this space? Well, um, you know, my work has uh, been always in the area of young people working with women, working with folks from um, all kinds of diverse groups, particularly folks who might experience um, things like racism and um, classism and sexism and homophobia, transphobia, all those things. And so it's been a really key part of my work to think about how to engage with um, people from all these communities in a way that doesn't further oppress and marginalize um, and make people feel small. And that's really important to me. I, I started off doing public education work directly with young people in places like schools and youth detention centers. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that young people would always say is when y'all, people doing public education work, would come and talk to us on things like healthy relationships and um, sexual violence. You talk down to us and you make us feel that we don't know about these issues already, but we know it in our lives every day. We might not use the language that you use, but we grapple with it all the time. And many times we find ways to deal with it and kind of work through it um, in a way that you know, needs no intervention. So mm-hmm. I think that's where I kind of really started off thinking about this issue. How do you work alongside communities who are doing this work anyway? Um, and they're doing it for themselves. And because you now have the privilege and you're stepping in, how do you further confirm that, you know, they're doing some great things and maybe they need more tools or maybe they need a microphone to um, get their message out. Maybe they need um, more opportunities to uh, participate in the education process or the problem-solving process, but it's not a matter of telling them that the way they've been doing it was wrong. It worked, and it worked for reasons. So I think that's kind of the, the groundwork that I'm bringing now to things like communications and public engagement and um, fundraising projects, uh, that idea that it's not about stopping people from doing what they're already doing or telling them that they're doing it wrong and there's a better way of doing it. It's a way of kind of feeding into what is already happening, listening really carefully and reflecting that back to the world um, so that we can all get in on that project that folks are already doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you give us an example of, I want to say the before, but what you see, where you see organizations go off course in this process. So what 
I've seen it. I'm sure most people have seen it. And as we know, with most forms of oppression, sometimes it's not almost all the time. It's not certainly intentional, especially in our sector, but it happens. So give us an example so people can understand specifically what they're talking about, maybe see uh, their own organizations or themselves or their peers in, uh, in that light in, in terms of where are we starting before we know how to get better? First of all, I'd say that I don't think anybody's doing anything uh, intentional. It tends to be an unintentional process. Um, it's a hidden issue that uh, comes up in the whole charity lens period. Um, so I'll just say it's not an intentional problem, but as we know, unintentional bias um, can create problems overall. So we still have to deal with it. So um, one of the things that I've seen, for instance, is um, this idea of showing deficits and showing uh, somebody, say, personal story or a community story of something negative that has happened, and then you can, as a donor, as a supporter, fund the solution. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think anything is inherently wrong with it. It's actually a truth. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem is how you frame the deficits. Um, sometimes that framing has been seen as inherent mm-hmm. um, as opposed to structural issues. So there's been stories where it's like so and so was an immigrant and uh, they came to Canada. They were, you know, thrown by the settlement process and there was a cultural clash. And it seems to be saying that the problem is with that person's culture. The problem is with that person's racialization or, you know, whatever, their their immigration status, when it really could be things like the country that they're coming to um, is very different and not set up well for um, supporting somebody to get into a community and back up and doing the things that they love to do. Maybe there's stressors on them in the immigration process of financial difficulties. Maybe the very process of getting status, um, immigration status has made them feel very vulnerable. And that means that they don't have access to services and supports the way folks who have um, been here for a long time have. So it's, it's to me mostly in the framing of the way uh, the problem is set up. And sometimes it also can be in the framing of the solution. So I do have an issue with um, us trying to say that the solution is something simple like money. Um, so you can support this by giving your money. And we always have to be really careful, I think, about showing that money is a tool. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not going to take care of everything like that example that I gave you. It will help them perhaps with more services in their language. It might help them um, get more relevant um, resources that they need. Sure. But if the solution is structural or one piece of the solution is structural, how will your charity dollars actually change that? It may not be able to, but perhaps if there's a way of framing it that you'll help fund the solution for this person right now and that this organization is going to take forward the things that we've learned and try to change policy and practice. I'm more behind that kind of thing Mm -hmm. where you're showing the solutions to be multiple, just like the problem is complex and multiple. And I have to say there's an inherent tension with that because communications and and fundraising copy and all those kinds of things, you know, it it tends to go down to the simplest denominator. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a lot of pressure to show urgency, obviously, um, to show need as dire and to show solution as, 
you know, just a single note. So I don't think it's easy and I don't think there's one solution. And I don't want to come across that I think anybody, again, is necessarily doing something wrong. But it does require us to sit in the tension and try to work through it in the way that we do things. And it might sometimes mean not doing things 100% optimally, but in a way that you can feel comfortable with it. So the example that I can think of most relevantly is at Eva's, and I, I think this is um really noble and wonderful about Eva's Initiatives for Homeless Youth, where I used to work, they always had this principle of when we're talking about youth homelessness, we're not going to frame a person's story in terms of what they called poverty porn. They would always say, you know, of course, this person might be dealing with poverty. This person might be dealing with um, needs and, um, you know, they, they might be looking for support and resources, sure. But we don't want to kind of overemphasize the details and get all stereotypical about how this person was lying on the streets and kind of overemphasizing it in a way that's really dehumanizing. So, you know, Eva's, I think, really pushed very hard for that. And sometimes in our campaign work, say we'd be working with people who are experts on this and they'd say, well, you know, I hear what you want to do. I agree. But you have to understand that that's what people expect. That's what's that's what people are going to fund. If you kind of lay off the details too much and don't get super salacious about them, people might not see the problem and may not be pulled to give or support. And um, the organization would like just relatively be relatively uh, sensitive and try to kind of balance the two considerations and try to do better with that, even though, honestly, it might not have been the most strong fundraising strategy. Yeah, I think that there's so much we're taught about fundraising best practices. And most of them, we do, we implement, you know, as fundraisers. But I do think that you can hold those two tensions and find a happy medium if you do so intentionally. And how impactful that is because people have a hard time conceptualizing how they as donors can make a difference on these large systemic issues, which really most of us are in the business of trying to change large systemic issues. So how do we uh, balance those two? And you can talk about individuals. And I really like how you structured that explanation, which is they they're individuals within a system. And how do we tell that overall story through someone instead of, you know, overemphasize that individual and their, as you call it, poverty porn, uh, and and not not mention that they're actually individuals who have a lot of assets and a lot of great things going for them. And as you mentioned very early on, who are actively working and have lived experience in in the areas that we're trying to create change. So how do we find that respectful medium? And I think it can be done, but as you said, it's not hard and sometimes it's not going to be perfect on either end. And I think that becomes authentic, which can be more meaningful. Absolutely. And, you know, I think when you were speaking, I was thinking about the, this idea of the story of the one it's, definitely the the kind of norm mm-hmm. that you see nowadays with with the way that fundraising narratives are 
packaged and repackaged in different mediums, regardless of like if it's digital, if it's on on paper in a direct mail piece, mm-hmm. um, if it's in a commercial. It, oftentimes, you're seeing this idea of story of one, and I sometimes have to question uh, the reasons why that is the way that we look at things so individualized. And I mm. do believe that it's tied right into our colonial um, ways of looking at things. It's something that we trained ourselves over many hundreds of years to do, mm-hmm. um, to not see ourselves as part of a broader system and that we are uh, kind of pulling ourselves up on our own bootstraps. And we know that's not really true. Um, you know, privileges mm-hmm. do play into it. And um, tax breaks and things do help us get on our on our uh, track to success. And I think we, uh, people in communications and fundraising, we think too easily that this is the way it must be. Mm-hmm. And we don't do enough to challenge and kind of give different kinds of storytelling. And I always go back to what I see Indigenous communities speaking to in Canada, this idea of all my relations Mm. and what it means to speak to an issue that, yes, has an individual impact and that could be very unique, but has a very big um, connection across people and across communities and has these kind of long-term intergenerational um, impacts. And would would in that framing the story of one have to be used all the time? Could you be very impactful and speak to collective impact? I think you probably could. You'd just have to push yourself mm-hmm. um, and not necessarily just accept that framing that we all have been trained into. Like I even think of the way the stories are told, like in movies and in novels. It's it's this kind of structure that is not a given it's been built up that way and then we expect it and we only consume and reward those who reflect it mm-hmm. um, I don't think that it's any different for communications and fundraising and nonprofits I think you have to do some work on changing the expectations and changing the framing and I, I look to United Way some of their campaigns that they've done really well showing how you know, it's a community building and supporting the individual, and it takes a lot of people. I think they have some very powerful ones. I'm thinking particularly United Way of um, Greater Toronto and York, or I can't remember what it's called <laughs> now. Um, but they have some beautiful campaigns where they try to show that kind of idea of multiple impact, that it's not an individual pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. Mm-hmm. Um, it's mm-hmm. actually your funding services to do this work and the people doing the services are, um, yes, pulling a salary, but that's not a problem. They deserve to be paid for their good work. So um, there are good examples out there. And I imagine that they do have a, a good deal of effectiveness, mm-hmm. um, even if they may not be, as you said, the most lucrative campaign in the world. Well, I also think that that addresses the idea of the savior complex. So Mm. understanding, and I think this is really important, and I think most donors know, but they kind of sometimes choose to ignore, uh, that you are not usually funding that one person. You are actually funding programs and support services and that community that together creates change. And uh, I think you're right. United Way does a great job of balancing that 
that idea that this is you're supporting systems and systemic change and that impacts individuals. The the idea is not that we as as donors, and I say we because most of us who work in the sector are donors in some capacity or another. Uh, most people in Canada are donors. So how are we not thinking of ourselves as, you know, scooping up this one person and changing their lives, but that we're actually changing our communities. And Mm. I think that that's a really important piece of it as well. So there's sort of that poverty porn, but also the savior complex that I think is not Mm. helpful in our sector. Um, I think you're so right. And that idea of savior complex, again, another tension for us to work out. In fundraising, in some way, we bank on that savior complex. It's something that, you know, whether or not we intend to do, sometimes we look to bolster that complex up in people and then say, hey, since you're the savior, why don't you save here? So I I think it's one of those things that might be inherent to the way that we've structured what it means to create uh, a giving Mm -hmm. um, and how we bolster giving and make somebody feel good in stewardship. It's all kind of part of that traditional framing of things Mm -hmm. that we do have to think critically on and really have to think about how we're going to do those projects like stewardship and not create this dynamic of savior. Um, that's tough to do because the savior complex, I think, has worked into all our all of our forms of oppression, right? So, like, there's mm-hmm. the white savior complex and there's the rich savior complex mm-hmm. and there's the man savior complex, for sure. Um, and then it becomes really core to people's identity. Um, and it's hard to challenge people's identity and say, you know what, the way you've looked at yourself your whole life, um, might not be accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, there might be something off with it, and you might think you're doing good, and in many ways you are, but let me give you another perspective of how this can be doing harm at the same time that you might be in one sense doing good. That's really difficult. Those are identity conversations, and um, those are always challenging, and they can easily raise people's defensiveness for understandable reasons. Stop the podcast just for a second. I just wanted to take a second to remind our listeners uh, who may not know that this uh, podcast is brought to you by The Good Partnership and Charity Village. So a lot of people don't know that both of our organizations are deeply committed to making sure that there are tons of great resources available to small nonprofits in our sector. And so I want you to take a minute to go and access some of those great free resources. For The Good Partnership, you can visit thegoodpartnership.com and specifically on our homepage or visit thegoodpartnership.com slash guide, you can download a free resource that outlines all different kinds of fundraising strategies you might want to consider for your organization. And for charityvillage.com, there's so many webinars and of course the podcast, um, articles, the list is endless. And of course, you can post jobs there, volunteer positions, uh, posting is free. So make sure that you are checking out both websites to deepen your learning and continue to access great free stuff. Great tips, Cindy. Now on the podcast. 
this is a bit of a tangent, but you mentioned the rich savior complex and that one actually is one of my pet peeves when we talk about philanthropy and we talk about donors. And so often I hear organizations say, we can't ask these people to give because they don't have money. Mm. And we take the power and choice away from them. Mm. And it has nothing to do with your ability or capacity. You could give a dollar. The act of taking away that decision to me is really bothersome. And part of that, uh, that inherent sort of savior complex when it comes to who can be at that table, who can actually make the decision to to invest in that change. That's one of my personal pet peeves. It is really irksome because the the statistics and the research will tell us opposite that mm-hmm. people with less money and less resources on a kind of, you know, outward social level will um, be more likely to give and will give more um, per capita, mm-hmm. and that they are much freer and more more charitable. Um, so it's actually statistically wrong mm-hmm. to push people out of the capacity to give. And you know, um, folks who may not have a ton of financial resources over the like you know that's just a short term way of looking at it. The, over the lifetime, they might very well give more. Mm-hmm. Um, than somebody who has a lot of resources and might just do one or two one-time gifts. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's very irksome, and it not only is silly when it comes to just you know reiterating these stereotypes, but it's also self-defeating. Let's talk a little bit about then how we go about either storytelling or fundraising. I mean, what's a great example of finding that balance or actually more specifically the path because it's not an all or nothing and it's certainly not an overnight change. But can you share that path or process, whether at Eva's or somewhere else, uh, or even if you're doing that at CWF right now, that this is not going to be an all or nothing, that this is a conversation we have to keep having with ourselves. So what does that conversation look like? Well, the first thing I would say is taking just a little step back, rolling back a bit, and looking at the people, the the team members who are involved in this. Um, if your team member is monocultural, um, if your group is not dynamic and reflective of the communities you serve and reflective of uh, Canada's diverse populations, you're going to have a harder time. Um, I think that diversity in teams who are tasked with communications and marketing and fundraising and storytelling, whatever the case may be, have to be diverse to really be able to look at things in all these different perspectives and kind of find those balances and um, kind of negotiate those balances. So I think that's really key. And I think organizations have a ways to go in terms Mm -hmm. of building that kind of diversity on staff, Um, particularly in leadership positions. We see that that is a problem in the Canadian charitable sector and things are getting better. I don't want to be negative, um, but it has to be, you know, right up to the board level that I, you have to see that diversity. And we're just not seeing it with respect to gender, with respect to, um, you know, sexuality and racialization. It's it's kind of one of those areas that 
needs continual and intentional improvement. I'd also say that how you engage the communities that you're purporting to help in that process become very important too. So if if there's no way of of pulling in quote unquote clients or the people who uh, you're funding and supporting through programs um, to be a part of the thinking, the planning, the storytelling itself um, in the sharing of that storytelling and the assets that come out of that, again, you're limiting yourself for no good reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's one of the things that then raises questions. How are you supporting people to be involved in the process? Are you paying them? Are you making it fun for them? Are you making sure that they get um, a little bit of experience on their resume? Are you helping them frame their time? Um, are you doing it at an accessible time for them? You know, they might be working shift work. They might not have a ton of extra time, but they would love to give you their time and their resources and their ideas here. So, you know, those are two kind of base pieces that if an organization doesn't have space for that or doesn't think about creating space for that, you're going to struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are like two kind of key things. But I would also say as well, too, you know, I feel sometimes that especially the big nonprofits that have the money to work with consultants on these projects um, and that those consultants could be creating copy, could create ads, could do whatever. That's also where sometimes we go wrong because we expect that those folks will understand uh, the way that we have that framing and maybe they don't. Mm -hmm. And so in the hiring process, those are questions we have to ask really intentionally. We have to see examples of work that we find inspiring and we like the approach that they did it in, the process that they did it in. Again, if they are not themselves that diverse, if they themselves don't reflect the communities and thinking that we're reflecting, then you know you're not going to get material that you actually like and can really feel strongly about. Um, so you know, there's a lot of considerations, but for me, I always go down to those kind of basic things. It's it's more on the process of how you do things and who's doing it. Um, and then in terms of like the actual, you know, working out of a project. Seeing it as an opportunity for you to pursue liberation work Mm -hmm. is really important to me. Um, So a lot of the times when we're doing these projects, we kind of see it as, you know, par for the course. And we have to look at it like a normal project. And maybe we ourselves deny the power of what we're doing, that this storytelling is making us. It's making, it's painting a picture of the people that we serve. It's painting a picture of how you make change. So to view it intentionally as a liberation process Mm -hmm. and a project that you can do to not only help, you know, raise money or bring attention to your issue, but a way that you can actually change thinking that has been problematic and maybe created the very problem you're trying to solve, um, is very important. And that means that you have to get excited about it. That means that you do have to see it as an important part of your mission and mandate and voice. Um, sometimes I see it's, it's kind of divorced from the, the real work of an organization. Mm-hmm. And again, that is just self-defeating yeah. by doing that. You know, oh, the real work is with the program staff and then the, the fundraisers and the communicators. Um, 
they're not doing the real work again. You're going to defeat yourself. You're not going to be happy with the product that comes out of it. And you're always going to feel like us and them between the different teams. Yeah. I've seen that so often in organizations, this siloed uh, effect, because there's a lack of connection between those two. And I also think it speaks a lot to the authenticity of the organization. Your job in fundraising or communications is to find that authentic voice. And you can't do that if in the process you're alienating your colleagues or the the populations you work with. So it really is as you said, the the cost to you doing this work can be significant and it can undermine your success as a fundraiser or communicator or policy person if you don't get it right and we see high fundraiser turnover in our sector and all these exactly. other things because we're not actively working to bridge those two parts of the organization. I do often wonder about the turnover rate with respect Mm -hmm. to that. Um, I know that, you know, the standard explanation of turnover in nonprofits is that you don't get paid well uh, to reflect your time. And there's definitely a truth in that. But the turnover might still persist regardless, Um, maybe because folks in fundraising and, you know, by extension, people in communication roles as well, might feel that kind of distance from the core mandate of mm-hmm. the organization. And, you know, I'm not saying this to say poor anybody, because the truth is everybody then has a responsibility to coach and mentor and train up one another. So I think if there's this dynamic going on where the fundraisers are not necessarily particularly aligned with the real work, quote unquote, of the organization, or there seems to be like a big disconnect, well, where's the training for that group? And where, how are you hiring in the first place? Are you hiring people with, with that kind of background? Like there's a lot of people with crossover background, especially in small nonprofits. But if you're only hiring from the big fish nonprofits, you're never going to find those people in your team who are able to like pull things, things together and have been like one hand in programming, one hand in fundraising, one hand in communication. They've been doing all kinds of things because they were just, it was just a small team and they had to grind like that. Exactly. So, oh. yeah, I do. I do think it's really so important that we just change the way we look at it and we change the support that we give one another. Um, and then we take on the project ourselves. I've seen so many people say in the communications world who are like, oh, I don't do direct work. Therefore, I don't have to go to that anti-oppression training. It's garbage. Like, how are you going to know how to do your work if you don't learn what oppression is and what your privilege is and how that creates unintentional things, dynamics Mm -hmm. that are difficult for anybody to break through, let alone you, who don't have that background of, of, you know, questioning those things. So it is up to us, too. I don't think anybody gets a free pass here, whether it be the people who are on the communications and fundraising teams or the people who are in the kind of direct service work. Um, we do have to kind of call each other out a little bit more and then support one another a little bit more and Mm -hmm. not make it so that it's so far apart from the quote-unquote real work of an organization. Yeah. We just onboarded a new uh, fundraising person to an organization that we helped hire, and that person was feeling very... uh, 
overwhelmed with all the things that needed to get done. And it's so easy to be called away for to do little things or urgent tasks or all the other stuff that sits on our shoulders every day. But I, we were very clear and specific that person's success in that role, 100% was tied to their ability to get out and embed themselves in the programming mm-hmm. of the organization, get to know the programming staff, get to know the the work from a frontline perspective, and nothing else mattered until that happened. And they would not mm-hmm. be successful. Those acts in the first month or two would set the tone for how the rest of the organization worked with that person. And it was so important to their long-term success there. So it is it, it is so valuable. It's one of the first things we do when we work with organizations is work to, to get to know and understand not just the executive director or the donors, but actually the staff uh, who are doing the, the frontline work day in and day out. And I can't understate how important that's been personally for me in my career, but also for the fundraisers I've seen who, as we've said throughout this conversation, they're doing the work because it needs to get done, but it also makes their work more effective and their time at their job more meaningful and more fulfilling and all the other things. It's really a win-win, but it's, it's, takes effort. And that's hard sometimes, as we know, in small nonprofit. It does take a lot of effort. And I don't know, sometimes <laughs> I, I might get uh, start getting into trouble so, here. Okay. But I do feel sometimes <laughs> that we do have this mentality that we're in the nonprofit world, and therefore, we're kind of martyrs, we're not making mm-hmm. the money that we should. And uh, should quote unquote, and uh, we're not, um, you know, moving moving in the spheres that we should. And sometimes when I myself start getting that kind of attitude, where ah, I'm doing so much work, oh, I'm so busy, oh, I don't get compensated for all this time, I have to remember that this was something that I chose because I loved, and I did it because I felt that my destiny was tied up in it. Mm-hmm. I understood that for the communities that I'm a part of, um, you know, as a racialized woman from an immigrant family on stolen land, um, I recognized that I went into this sector because I saw the potential and power in supporting people just like me. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I think we don't do that reflective work in communications and in fundraising. It's like not necessarily even frame that way and that means that it's upon us to frame it that way nobody's going to do it for us we kind of have to do it for ourselves so how do we do that we take all the courses that we can when the organization is putting on a a training for the service providers to learn about trauma-informed um approaches we go to that and we listen to it and we think about how we can repackage that message in our work mm-hmm. um, it may not be 100% clear right off the bat we have to do some thinking it's it's like thinking labor that we have to put into it and planning labor that we have to put into it but it's so well worth it um because it does make us more effective and sometimes i think that's one of the reasons why like i that's the only thing why i feel i'm 
I bring it to the table sometimes is this kind of thinking that um, maybe is a little rare and maybe it's something that has to be built up and I'm I'm able to say, you know, I'm, I'm going to try, I'm going to listen, I'm going to try to repackage the very ways that we do service into the way that we do communication mm-hmm. and the way that we do public engagement. I'm going to take those very same lessons and find a way, even though it's not clear, find a way to make it so that it feels fully aligned to our mission and our mandate as an organization. So I, I really would challenge us in this sector to think about that a little bit more and not get into a, a pitying, self-pitying <laughs> kind of frame when we're asked to do it. Oh my goodness. I feel like we could talk all day, but I am aware of the time and uh, there was so much there, I think, for people to absorb. But thank you so much for this conversation. Uh, I know it means a lot to me and I hope to our listeners as well. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Andrea, any resources you want to share with our listeners or where they can learn more about you? Oh, well, uh, you can Google my name and you'll be able to find my website. And uh, just that's my personal website. I'm a writer as well. Um, And I have a novel coming out in the fall. um, So you'll be able to find a little bit of information about that. Um, And it's a special story for me because it is partially based on a historical uh, reality of a friend of mine who grew up in the Nova Scotia home for colored children. And he shared a story with me and I was able to fictionalize it in this book. So I'm really uh, looking forward to that. And of course, it speaks to things like our historical, uh, you know, (laughs) framework when it comes to child protection and, and how we deal with racialized young people who need help. Um, so I would just uh, ask folks if you're interested in that to find my website. Uh, I can't even remember what it is. AndreaGunrush.ca and you'll find more information about it. Uh, that's so cool. I had no idea you were a writer as well. And we will definitely keep an eye out for the book. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Well, folks, that's it for today's episode of The Small Nonprofit. I'm your host, Cindy Wagman, and this show is brought to you by The Good Partnership. As a reminder, if you want more resources around raising more money for your small nonprofit, visit thegoodpartnership.com and download our free fundraising strategy guide. I'll see you next week.